So for example, if you're, say, going to deploy a set of security products on a new computer network that's never used your security products before, and you want to detect, for example, insider threats, like insiders moving files around in ways that look suspicious. If you don't have any known examples of people at the company doing that, and also examples of people not doing that, and if you don't have like thousands of known examples of people at the company doing that, that are current and likely to reoccur in the future, Machine learning is just never going to compete with just like manually writing down some heuristics around like what we think bad looks like. Because like basically in this case, the machine learning is competing with the common sense model of the world and expert knowledge of a security analyst. And like there's no way machine learning is going to compete with the human brain in this context. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and security. In November of last year, the AI research and development lab OpenAI revealed its latest, most advanced language project, a tool called ChatGPT. To call ChatGPT just a chatbot would be an oversimplification, as that might draw parallels to early 2000s novelties like the chatbot Smarter Child on AOL Instant Messenger, which, and this is true, would get mad if you swore at it. I would know I was in middle school at the time. <laughs> Chat GPT, which uh, may get mad if you swear at it, I don't actually know, is far more advanced than that predecessor. Uh, ChatGPT can have fun with language. Uh, for example, ChatGPT was asked to write a biblical verse in the style of the King James Bible explaining how to remove a peanut butter sandwich from a VCR. And ChatGPT responded in part, and it came to pass that a man was troubled by a peanut butter sandwich, for it had been placed within his VCR, and he knew not how to remove it. And he cried out to the Lord, saying, O oh Lord, how can I remove this sandwich from my VCR? For it is stuck fast and will not budge. <laughs> a satisfying parlor trick, absolutely, yes. But if you dig deeper into ChatGPT, you'll start to see that it can, and I'm taking a big pause here before I commit to these words, it can understand things. It can give you recipes that account for whatever dietary restrictions you have. It can deliver basic essays about moments in history. It can and has been used to cheat by university students who are giving a new meaning to plagiarism, stealing work that is not theirs. It can write song lyrics about X topic as though composed by Y artist, and, and this is where many of our interests lie today, ChatGPT can be used to some success to analyze lines of code for flaws. It is a capability that has likely further energized the multi-billion dollar endeavor to apply AI to cybersecurity. AI is big in cybersecurity right now, and it makes sense when you think about an idealized form of AI. 
Last year, we spoke to two threat hunters about how they find cyber attackers in a network, and much of that work was log analysis, mysteriously timed logins, or hundreds of remote desktop login attempts that were all blocked, or even a pattern of login attempts that happens every week at the exact same time in the middle of the night. Those are warning signs for a security team, and often a security product will raise attention to those warning signs. But imagine if an advanced AI could start looking beyond the obvious into risky behavior. What if it could even catch an insider threat where all the login activity is allowed, yes, and yet it is still malicious? Why, that sounds helpful. That sounds simple, but AI isn't simple. It reads what we give it, mostly, and it's measured, uh, well, that's actually part of today's show. I, I don't know how it's measured, and I'd like to find out because AI is moving quickly. And if it's being implemented into many, many use cases, many of those beyond just cybersecurity, then we should probably talk about whether it's successful and how we can ensure that it is successful or at least observable and where it is all going. Today, to help us understand the state of machine learning and artificial intelligence and what it's good at and what it's still learning, we're speaking with Josh Sachs, former chief scientist at Sophos, who now works in trust and safety at Meta. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we are happy to have you here. Pretty excited. It is our first episode on AI and machine learning and this enormous topic, which I think will only grow in importance and popularity in the future. So there's a lot and let's just jump right into it. And one of the things I wanted to kind of do for our audience before we get into like the nitty gritty is that I wanted to just kind of recognize that a lot of, I think the public today learns about artificial intelligence through a sort of like mishmash of different terminology and sort of like different scenarios, different imagined things that it could be applied for. And so I wanted to avoid all that first and just ask really basically, what is artificial intelligence and relatedly, right? What is machine learning? Yeah, so on the first term, artificial intelligence, I would say, I don't think the term is is super useful. It gets used in a lot of different senses. Um, mm-hmm. Like marketing departments tend to just use it um, willy nilly, you know, because it sounds good and um, yeah, it gets people's attention. Yeah, more more serious technologists use it in a variety of ways. Nowadays, usually, what artificial intelligence really means are machine learning systems and sort of the surrounding technology that enable us to to, to go to market with those those systems. So usually, not just the machine learning algorithms themselves, but also databases that we use to train those machine learning systems, uh, serving systems that allow us to actually productionize the machine learning systems. We usually, when serious technologists, you know, are using AI in in an honest sense, they're referring to to that sort of complex of technologies. The heritage of the term AI also includes other kinds of methods, which really aren't machine learning methods, like old school chess engines that don't use machine learning, but can beat the best humans at playing chess through sort of symbolic search strategies. There's other kinds of algorithms that historically have been associated with AI, but nowadays when somebody's using AI, I think honestly, not in a marketing sense, they're, they're usually referring to machine learning and the sort of surrounding enabling technologies that are used for machine learning. You mentioned really quickly there, and I can't not ask this about like the way chess engines work. And the, like you said, yes, they can beat like the best humans. 
Mm-hmm. Wait, how do how do chess engines work? <laughs> yeah, so so I'm not like a deep expert in chess engines, but I, I can say that like the sort of pre-machine learning chess engines used approaches like the following. Like, so they, they had a model of of the state of a chessboard. They knew just based on if then else type logic uh, which pieces could move where. And then they had some heuristics for deciding what a good board state was. Um, like a good board state for for white would be, you know, having vanquished all of black's pieces, right? So, or you know, more with more subtlety, you know, um, <laughs> reducing the the pawn count uh, on the black side by by one, you know, as compared to white, you know, that that would that would be a good board state. Um, so, in these old school chess engines would use like tree search methods where they would you know pick a path like maybe let maybe I move my rook's pawn forward one square they pick a path like that and then rate rate the resulting board state and they would explore it with some depth you know down the tree of possible board states and then they would sort of sum up the value of any particular move and pick the move with the highest value based on this tree search method so this sort of approach is, doesn't involve any machine learning um, it involves you know other kinds of algorithms but historically it was associated with artificial intelligence I think because uh, it involves getting a computer to do something that we normally we would normally associate with human intelligence. I'm gonna ask again about this chess thing. Sorry, but no, it's I'm fine. really yeah I'm really intrigued by it. Also because like you said, there you know the it's processing a value of a move based on various information we've given it about what is a quote unquote good or progressive board state, and that's interesting to me as well because like like you said it. It's not as reductive as like more pieces. In fact, famously, it is not that. You know, chess, chess does not necessarily require more or less pieces. I'm reminded very quickly of a character in the book, The Joy Luck Club, who is a chess player, and she's always disappointed that her mom only views it as you lost more pieces than your opponent, even though she won. And like, that's such a good kind of summation of like, you can lose more pieces, but you can still win. That's the game of chess. And so I'm just so intrigued already about like everything that we taught it, like we taught it that, right? Like we (laughs) were very advanced in saying how chess works and then we built a thing that could beat us. I'm just intrigued by that very idea. Yeah, I think think you're getting at like a general property of machine learning, which is that I think you can tell me if I'm if I'm understanding you right, David. Like machine learning basically works best in contexts in which humans can't write down explicit rules about about how to solve a problem. It would be very very hard to write a program that has like a big switch statement over you know all possible board positions and um, recommends you know the next move in all possible scenarios, right? Uh, yeah, you need machine learning for that sort of thing where, where the computer just sort of learns the rules on its own based on training data. And yeah, that's a fascinating thing about machine learning, right? It basically learns a numerical program that um, is sort of a black box, but you know, when it's successful, it winds up solving a problem that uh, we don't have a better way to, to solve with computers. Yeah, thank you for making that thought better and more fulfilled <laughs> because that was sort of what I was getting at, that, sure. that black box idea, um, which is really interesting like exciting. But before we completely derail, you know, everything that I had planned for this episode, um, I wanted to get back to, again, machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And my experience with these terms, like you said, that there is a lot of marketing that is taking advantage of, of terms like artificial intelligence. And it's it has unfortunately brought up like a parallel in my mind of the days of 
big data in the days of like the blockchain. I remember, you know, years ago, there were a lot of proposals that like the blockchain could fix anything. Like the blockchain was the answer. I, I, a real, you know, left field, like dreadful example is these fellows who said that they could solve uh, like sexual consent by putting it on the blockchain because they were like, well, therefore it's an immutable record. And therefore like, and like that way, uh, it's fine. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know what their next like their next sentence was in their elevator pitch, right? But already, like it's hard to see how that would be a quote unquote solution. And so I'm reminded again of, of these things where AI is just kind of constantly used in, in so much marketing speak. But I want to give AI and machine learning like a fair shake. I don't want to douse them in that prior reputation. And so I want to just ask, what are AI and machine learning? good at so to speak yeah yeah that's like that's actually like a super hard question to to answer because we're constantly getting surprised right by what's what ai and machine learning are able to do i would say that the thus far though the sweet spot for ai is i would say in, in converting natural signals like natural seeing signals being like images audio and video and sort of other signals in that vein which are you know, just binary blobs, basically, um, from, from the perspective of computing, converting those kinds of signals into structured representations, taking a, a huge data set of images, and then converting each image into like a JSON blob that describes the objects in the image, and perhaps the meaning of the overall scene in the image, or taking an audio stream and converting that into text, you know, voice to text transcription. Or understanding the objects in the video, like in the context of a you know driver assist system in, in a car. These are sweet spots for machine learning for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, there's just no way to use traditional programming effectively to make sense of what objects are in an image, right? If you imagine trying to write a program, you know, to analyze the pixels in the image and decide that there's a parakeet in the image, have that work on new images that your system had never you know seen before. I mean, it would basically be impossible, right? So machine learning in that case. I mean, for, for years, it was sort of the, the least bad option, I would say, for making sense of like, what, you know, what we were seeing in imagery or the, the language being spoken in an audio stream. Now it's actually gotten quite good at those kinds of tasks. So, I mean, that's, that's like a huge success area in machine learning. And at this point, the tech industry, you know, there's no, no hype there, right? It's just the tech industry heavily relies on those kinds of capabilities. You know, there's lots of other areas where the machine learning is really good at. Like nowadays, machine translation has got gotten quite good. And machine learning is like the way that we do translation between languages now in the, in the tech industry. Um, and there's lots and lots of other cases. And it's and machine learning is weird in that like surprises come up, like, you know, a machine learning based system solving the longstanding problem of predicting the three-dimensional structure of, of a protein from the sequence of, of amino acids that we know are in the protein. Like, I, I don't know that five years ago, anybody would have predicted that machine learning would have proven the, the sort of best approach for that problem, but, you know, just sort of popped up when Google DeepMind um, did the research and came up with a solution along those lines. You mentioned something really good there, like we couldn't have predicted that like five years ago. Are we still encountering that problem? Like we don't know what it will be good at until we throw it at that issue? Yeah, I would say we we definitely are. Like you mentioned ChatGPT in your intro, I think ChatGPT is a case where the machine learning natural language process community was really surprised at just how effective that system proved to be. 
And I think even people who are very close to that problem of language modeling, I think we're surprised by how, how good ChatGPT is. That's just one example. But yeah, we're, we're constantly being surprised. Why are we constantly being surprised? Like, why can't we predict what it will be good at? I think one part of the answer to that is the black box nature of machine learning. Most simply put, machine learning models are trained by giving them a lot of inputs and having them predict the kind of outputs that we would like them to predict. And there's a sense in which we don't know until we try whether or not a machine learning system can learn to do that, right? Um, and, then, and then to generalize beyond its training data. That's one reason I think we're constantly surprised. There's also, there's been a new set of insights that have come up in the last, I don't know, three or four years in the machine learning community around the relationship between various design parameters of machine learning systems and their capabilities. What the community has found is that as we scale up the size of our models, new capabilities emerge from those models that we couldn't have predicted and that surprise us. Like, so for example, large language models like GPT-3, these are models that are trained to predict the next few characters in documents of text, at least in their original, now the community has moved on to training them in more complicated ways, but basically in their original state, they were trained to predict just the next few characters in documents. And it surprised everybody when it turned out that they learned just via this sort of autocomplete training procedure to do simple arithmetic, to solve you know to solve some classes of word problems and calculus problems. Those capabilities just emerged as a function of model scale and, and training data scale. So we get surprises, I think, because of these scaling dynamics too. Like we don't know what models what what our models are going to do once we scale them up 10x of what they are right now. That's so insane <laughs> i don't yeah. know how else to like to yeah. put it that's in, like yeah. and it makes me also kind of want to dig into an earlier question where i just asked like what is machine learning uh and we've referred to like this black box a couple of times like how is it built i i understand that's probably like a really simple question with like an extraordinarily complex answer but like i'm wondering like how is a machine learning system built so that like how do we build it so that we can give it inputs. I, I just, there's so much I don't know. Yeah. You mean like what are some of the mathematical ideas behind machine learning? Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of different mathematical and algorithmic ideas that sort of are in the machine learning tent. Increasingly over the last 10 years, the field has really moved towards deep learning, aka artificial neural networks. And most of the new models being developed now are deep learning models. So I, I can talk a bit about how deep learning works, just with the caveat that there are other classes of you know, machine learning approaches that we won't be talking about. So I mean, the sort of big intuition behind deep learning is based on some metaphors. So you know, there's the metaphor in deep learning of, of, a, of a neuron. Basically, a neuron is like a little function that takes a bunch of inputs, numerical inputs, uh, does a weighted summation of those inputs, um, and then has something called an activation function, which in an extremely vague and hand-wavy way sort of models, you know, 1950s era models of like neurons in the brain. Um, so the neuron activates if it gets enough energy as its, as its input. This is, this is a very simple sort of first order approximation of how deep learning works, but you have lots of neurons and they're connected to each other and they, they pass inputs uh, sort of up a stack of, of layers of, of neurons. Uh, and then finally, they give an output. For example, then that, that output might be the probability that there, there's a cat in, a, in an image. That, that's how very, very roughly neural network models are structured. I'll also say something about how they're, how they're trained. So basically, you can think of each of the interconnections between the neurons as a sort of knob. And as you turn any one of the individual knobs, and like modern neural networks will have like millions of these knobs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parameters. Like 
as we train the neural network, those knobs are sort of getting adjusted and the knobs control the behavior of the neural network. So if, if your neural network's a cat detector, turning a knob will change the probabilities on a, on a given image um, around the output that the neural network will give around whether the image shows a cat or not. Um, and what the training process does is basically tune all of those knobs so that they generate the kind of behavior that we would like. And the math behind how we tune the knobs, maybe, you know, it's beyond the scope of, of this conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's basically, you know, it's a fairly simple calculus that, that goes into, into tuning those knobs with a lot of sophistication about heuristics around how we, like, there's some math behind how you tune the knobs, but there's also a ton of folk knowledge and heuristics around how we train neural networks that is a big part of what the research community produces and is, and is continuing to produce in, in the field. I wanted to go back to the question of, you know, wh what are these things good at? And like you said, there's huge success in detection of images. Um, and then kind of the inverse, are there also, I'm not asking what are these, these technologies bad at? Um, I'm asking what problems can they make worse? And I ask that because um, with ChatGPT, a lot of folks have suggested that now, like phishing emails will become better because the classic examples of phishing email, you know, misspellings and just uh, like clunky grammar, those yeah. will be gone. And so I, I kind of on that same vein, what problems can machine learning make worse, you know, when it's, when it's put in malicious hands? I think you're right that um, it's likely that we'll see attackers use, for example, language models to generate like phishing content it seems likely, you know, that um, we'll see machine learning uh, being used in information operations by nation states, both in the text context and also probably imagery and that kind of thing. And yeah, I think I think we're going to be living in a reality and that emerges over the next decade in which generative AI, you know, AI that generates imagery, text, you know, there's there's now in the research literature, model, you know, models that are impressive at generating videos as well, models that generate three D models. Right, I think that kind of AI is going to be useful in the hands of adversaries. So yeah, I think that's I think that's going to be a problem for sure. And I mean, not just in cybersecurity, right? But I mean, it's obviously bringing up problems in education and other areas as well, like where, where, where students are you know, cheating on their homework and that kind of thing using ChatGPT. <laughs> Do we have any defenses to these things or can we predict like how we'll get better at it? Some stuff like stuff like, you know, phishing emails getting better, but also like, yeah, um, you know, I've, I've seen that apparently a tool was already built to catch whether or not ChatGPT was used for plagiarism. And so yeah, yeah. Yeah, just kind of more broadly, do we have defenses? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, my take here is that, um, sure, like we're going to find ways to defend against this kind of thing. It's going to have the same texture as cybersecurity has always had, which is there's no silver bullets. We'll have to take a kitchen sink approach to, for example, detecting AI-generated phishing emails. I think, it's, I think solving that problem is going to be a combination of the same old tools that we use uh, and have used all along for the last decade or so in cybersecurity, which is a combination of heuristics and rules and regexes and pattern matching and machine learning and behavioral analysis, you know, like in the phishing context, right? Like reputation analysis of a, a sending email address and sending email domain, social network analysis, right? Over the sort of uh, implicit email graph. I think, you know, we're, we're going to use all the same tooling. Probably the machine learning will get better, but it won't be a silver bullet, you know, in terms of defending against this stuff. But, you know, it'll be the same kind of cat and mouse game that we've had forever in cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like whenever the takeaway is like, 
it's the same thing it's always been, you know, um, because <laughs> that's that is having done this show for like three years. That is what it feels like. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'll just keep doing that. Yeah, yeah, there's some pretty durable themes in cybersecurity. This doesn't directly answer the last question you asked, but I also wanted to say, you know, we've been talking about machine learning in general so far, uh, but in the cybersecurity domain, I think machine learning has like sort of unique product dynamics. Like basic, so cybersecurity is different than say computer vision or voice to text transcription. And that machine learning is never the only game in town for detecting cyber attacks because we're dealing in cybersecurity with like mostly structured textual data, uh, whether it's uh, PowerShell scripts, command line behavior, like a PE binary. In the case of all of those artifacts, expert rules like signatures and little programs that we write to, to, to do sort of if-then-else logic around detection are a very strong competitor to machine learning. Oftentimes, rules outperform machine learning. And one sort of failure mode I've noticed in the design of security detection systems is that because machine learning is, is hot, company leadership, like sort of, you know, technical leaders within cybersecurity companies, marketing departments, really overweight the machine learning components, at least in the way they talk about the technology, but also sometimes in the way that they design the technology and rules and signatures aren't, aren't given their, their due. I just think that's a difference in, in cybersecurity as compared to other fields where machine learning is really the only game in town. Because you mentioned that, let's get right on that, right? Like I was saying at the intro, you know, at least in the advertising that you can find online, AI is like huge in cybersecurity. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I was, I was seeing that IBM security says that uh, they claim that 100% of their products now use AI, which is like all of them. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. you were talking there about how like it's a good supplement because we already have so many ways that we do catch cybersecurity threats. But one thing that you just said, I thought was really exciting because it, it also lets me ask a, another question that's a little bit deeper here, where you said that rules outperform machine learning. That makes me think, well, we've studied that. How do we know that? So I'm confident in that perspective, just based on my experience and, and what I know about the strengths and weaknesses of, of both. I could probably also give you some specific examples, but I'll just start with sort of the general sort of reason why I think this is true. Machine learning requires a ton of data uh, in order to work well. Not just a ton of data, data, a ton of labeled data that actually reflect the scenario in which you're going to deploy it. So, so for example, if you're, say, going to deploy a set of security products on a new computer network that's never used your security products before, and you want to detect, for example, insider threats, like insiders moving files around in ways that look suspicious. If you don't have any known examples of people at the company doing that, and also examples of people not doing that, and if you don't have like thousands of known examples of people at the company doing that, that are current and likely to reoccur in the future, machine learning is just never going to compete with just like manually writing down some heuristics around like what we think bad looks like. Because like basically in this case, the machine learning is competing with the common sense model of the world and expert knowledge of a security analyst. And like, there's no way machine learning is gonna compete with the human brain in this context. So, you know, in a context like that, you should not be using machine learning. You should be using heuristics that people just write in, into, a, into a rule-based system. I observed in my time in the security industry, this mistake being made over and over and over again, where people think that machine learning is the right way to do something where really rules are far superior. I mean, that said, 
there's a lot of cases where you really do want to use machine learning. Like everybody in the security industry now uses machine learning to detect .exe and .dll malware as one of the, you know, they also use signatures. Everybody should also be using signatures, but machine learning is very valuable in a context like that where you've got millions of known malware files you can train on and obviously millions of known goodware files. So there are application areas like that, but it's just not everywhere. Um, I think it gets, I think machine learning gets overused in the security industry. I'm glad you mentioned like, you know, that it's, it is used for certain things and it's, um, like it's used right now in those yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that was kind of my question is like, what is its role in cybersecurity moving forward? And it sounds like it's it's very much supplemental, but I want to just revisit that. You know, what what is the role of machine learning in cybersecurity moving forward? Where machine learning contributes in security, like in all the cases in, in all of my experience, is where it can be used in addition to all of the other techniques we use to detect attacks. And there are definitely lots of cases where it provides a significant incremental value in addition to those other systems. And those, those cases, I think, are basically all cases in which we have a lot of training data labeled as good and bad. And our training data is up to date relative to the kinds of attacks that we're seeing now. So cases where I've seen machine learning be really successful are like detecting malicious Android apps, malicious Windows malware, I haven't done that much work on this firsthand, but I have seen it um, produce successful results on Mac OS X malware. I've seen machine learning be super valuable in detecting phishing emails and malicious web content. You know, cases where it's not valuable are like, for example, what I said about insider threats or any case where you don't have real training data. In those cases, you really just need to rely on heuristics. On that question that I had earlier, right, that again, Back to how rules are outperforming ML. The reason I was so interested in it is because it kind of touched on this question I had at the very beginning, which is how do we measure right the success of machine learning? And you were talking about a little bit earlier that kind of what we're doing is we're putting inputs into something and then we measure the success based on the outputs that we want from it. And I wanted to revisit that again just how do we measure whether or not like machine learning has been successful in the fields we're applying it to? I mean, so there's just a whole bunch of metrics that are used in the research community. So for cybersecurity, the most relevant metrics are like precision, which is when a machine learning detection system says something is malicious, what's the probability it actually is malicious? Recall, uh, which is what percentage of the overall bad things in a data set does your machine learning detector detect? Uh, those are two examples. I mean, there's a bunch of other metrics of, you know, around detection that are commonly used in cybersecurity, but they're like, you know, like standard ways of measuring and quantifying how good a system is. I mean, there's also the problem of like experimental setup. So you can say, you know, your system has a precision of 0.9 and a recall of 0.6, uh, but that doesn't mean much unless you know the structure of the experiment itself and level of fidelity the experiment has to like the real world scenario in which you're going to deploy your system. So I mean, I've seen this mistake it made a lot in cybersecurity, which, you know, some researchers publish accuracy numbers on a data set that's contrived and not at all reflective of, of reality. So, you know, experimental design is super important in how we measure these systems also. The research that's being done by companies working on this, I've read actually from you that, uh, a lot of times it's like comparing apples to oranges because everyone's relying on a different data set. Uh, can you talk more about that? Because it seems like it's a major problem that we're producing research and even with our best intentions, you know, we're publishing that out there, but then like we can't really compare it. What's going on there? 
Yeah, that's true. I, I did. <laughs> yeah, that was that was, a, that was a rant that I went on publicly a, a few times <laughs> like that. Um, so yeah, I yeah. So I, I still agree with that. I mean, I think that cybersecurity has a barrier to doing as rigorous science around machine learning as as I think we would like. That barrier is that, or there are very few public benchmark data sets that researchers at multiple institutions and companies can use to compare their results when when they're developing machine learning systems. Like I, ideally, you'd want public benchmark data sets that everyone, you know, whether they're at Malwarebytes or Sophos or Microsoft um, or in academia could use to show the efficacy of their ability to detect phishing emails. Um, but actually, most um, published research just shows experimental results on bespoke data sets that are private and that nobody else can see. Um, so what that means is that the results people are reporting against say, like an important problem like phishing detection are incommensurate. Like you could read 20 papers on machine learning phishing detection and not know which proposed the best approach because the results are not comparable. So, you know, I think this is a problem that deserves attention. It's a hard problem because, for example, email data sets are inherently private. So um, there's no simple way of sharing them. But, um, you know, at least for some cybersecurity problems, I think we could do a much better job at creating these public benchmarks. I guess I would also say that in other areas of machine learning, so maybe most famously in image classification, there are very good public benchmarks that thousands and thousands of researchers have used to compare their results uh, with each other. And those benchmarks, I think, have really powered progress in the machine learning fields. And I feel like, you know, we could probably do the same thing in cybersecurity if we had better, better benchmarks. What are the consequences of this being like the current state of data science because when you said you know like you could have so many papers out there and still not know like because you can't compare one of the images i saw is that like other companies that are reading this research could almost have like a sort of like choose your own adventure of like where ai or or machine learning succeeds and that feels like it shouldn't be that way uh but i wanted to ask you like what are the consequences of us not having like a public set of benchmarks that's a good question i i think the main consequence is that we don't know which company, which vendors have the best machine learning programs and um, components. And we don't even know, we can't detect the really bad apples either. You know, I mean, there's some companies who I think are just totally making it up with respect to their machine learning technology and have <laughs> actually have very little, you know, and it's just all marketing. And those sort of bad actors don't get exposed that's bad for all of us um, because yeah, because we might believe that we're protected when we're not. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, right. Like that there's some models out there that, that we could follow to, to help improve this, to help improve like the collaboration. I just wanted to revisit that right there. Like what, what can companies do? Like, can companies even do anything starting today to address this issue? Like, is it in companies' hands? Like, I, I just want to know how we fix this. Yeah. So back when I was working in cybersecurity, which was up until last summer, I was peripherally involved in um, like a standards organization within the industry called the Anti-Malware Testing Standards Organization, which is like a coalition of security vendors, like almost everybody's in there, and then third-party testers. So I'm not sure, David, maybe where you saw me make this argument was I gave a talk in front of that group about the importance of these benchmarks. My argument there was that like, you know, standards organizations like that, that one should get involved in creating machine learning benchmarks, given how common... Claims around AI are in our industry. Um, I still think that's probably the right 
approach. Um, I don't think I, you know, um, had much influence with it, <laughs> with the talk I gave. But, uh, but, I, but I do think that that would be the right step for the cybersecurity industry to take as a whole, sort of agree on a set of tests that we could run around specifically the AI components within cybersecurity products that everybody measures themselves by. I wanted to revisit something. Again, we refer to machine learning often as a, as a black box. And I want to know, do we have any corollaries to that? Like, so that our audience can just understand what that means. Um, because, uh, and I, I want to revisit it, right? Because a lot of folks have like this understanding of a black box, obviously, is like the thing that gets recorded in an airplane. But I also want to know, like, are there any other systems we have where we put something into it and something comes out and we don't know what's happening in the middle? Um, because I feel like that's a very insane concept <laughs> and i wanted to revisit it to see if there was a if just to see if there do we have corollaries yeah that's a good that's like a good philosophical question i mean i think like the reality is right like uh, in any large technical organization everybody's just you know touching one small part of the the elephants you know i mean nobody knows how the whole, <laughs> knows how the whole thing works yeah. you know yeah. there's there's yeah, yeah. one person you know working on windows at microsoft who um, knows the whole code base, I would imagine, right? Um, or at any, you know, on any large, like there's no one person who worked on the space shuttle, right? Who could who could build the whole thing by themselves, or even explain, you know, a subsystem that's you know a couple hops removed, you know, in the sort of in the org chart of that organization. So I think, yeah, I think that's just the, I think it's the condition of living in modern society that we're dealing with opaque technical systems that we don't understand and. Um, from that perspective, neural networks are just a special case of that. People are working on methods for introspecting into neural networks and getting, getting some sense of what's going on there. But um, yeah, I think they, they're, they're particularly opaque as technical artifacts. That's such a good analogy that like no one person can build the space shuttle. Right. That's fascinating, right? Yeah, I understand it, right? So I feel like much of modern technology is there's no one person who could explain both the microcontrollers in a car, you know, and and the engine and the drive shaft, you know, and whatever the, the material, the, you know, the exact material composition of the windshield. I mean, it's just, you know, expertise is highly fragmented in, in our society. It's so funny. My mind immediately goes to when I was working to limit NSA surveillance, like, you know, what, what NSA surveillance captures because like it was this huge it still is this huge regime that catches electronic communications and mm -hmm. there were rules right that were set for what it captured and they were also like the fact that you even mentioned the word hops right like that's a thing that was also mentioned in nsa surveillance like how many hops away from a target are the communications also being collected right so you target one person and then one hop away is the people that that person is emailed with and then sometimes there's another hop from that second person, right? And it was hard to ever grasp what was being collected. And you could only really find out based on information that was revealed about like when an agent would search the actual database, retrieve something from it. There wasn't one person who could say, this is exactly how it works. But there were a lot of people who could say, I know it worked because I retrieved X record when I searched it. And yeah. that feels the same way. And that's, you know, that's like a really shameful example. <laughs> um, but that yeah. is a thing. Like, that's a thing. And, and, and it exists. I wanted to 
steer off of that and then close out here with finally one enormous question. And I assume there's like probably a million different ways we could take this. But my big question is just how do you see machine learning developing in the future? And that's, you know, what could it be used for? What won't it be used for, if anything? Um, will we ever put controls on it? Just kind of splintering from there. How do you see it developing in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. So machine learning is a lot of things, right? I think the sort of mature parts of machine learning are, are going to proliferate and we're going to see them popping up in more and more products. You know, we've seen this with neural networks and also non-neural network techniques like gradient boosted decision trees and random forests within cybersecurity. It, it's been like a, I guess, really like a 30-year journey that's not linear. It's like sort of accelerated over the last 10 years or so where like, you know, basically we saw you know, we've now seen almost universal adoption probably of machine learning um, from the major cybersecurity vendors, but it took like a long time and the adoption lagged behind the progress. You know, I think we're going to see more and more sort of proliferation of proven technologies throughout uh, the economy. Um, so for example, like with, you know, these new large language models like GPT-3, like I suspect that we'll see cybersecurity companies adopt models like that over the next decade. There's all sorts of applications of these large language models that, that matter for security. But it's going to lag behind, you know, like the industry tech leaders, I would say. So I think like, I think you'll just see this sort of um, non-uniform proliferation of like what works to more and more parts of the economy. And obviously cybersecurity is just one, you know, it's, it's just one example. But there's all sorts of industries that are going to be affected by the technology that's been proven out among the technology leaders. I think where there's a lot of uncertainty is at the frontier, right? It's like, are we going to get fully autonomous vehicles working at scale you know, in the foreseeable future, and what's that going to mean for the economy, right? I mean, it's become sort of a joke, you know, how self-driving cars are always five years in the future or whatever. But, you know, it does, it does seem like once that problem gets solved, um, nobody knows when, you know, it, it'll be transformative. I think we'll continue to be surprised by capabilities that just pop up. Like, I think the protein structure prediction work that's emerged in the last few years in the deep learning space is, is an example of such a surprise. I think five or 10 years ago, nobody would have predicted the progress. And now there's going to be all sorts of downstream applications to our ability to map, you know, the space of all, all sort of naturally occurring proteins um, that we couldn't have predicted. I think we'll just continue to be surprised by what happens in the field. And I think it would be foolish to predict exactly what surprises are going to, are going to come up. I like the autonomous car example, because from what we've discussed today, it also seems, and I might be wrong here, but it seems like there also might... Like there might be a day tomorrow where it's solved uh, because there are surprises in how this works or like, am I getting it wrong that like, you know, the way we're using it cur currently in, in autonomous driving, that it's linear, like, or are there still opportunities for an explosion of intelligence? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to speak outside of my expertise. I'm not a, I'm not a self-driving car person, but I, I do think it's reasonable to expect that there could be surprises in that space. You know, there's like new modeling techniques that come out, like some of our audience here may have heard of the idea of a transformer as a, as a building block of modern neural networks. I mean, that just, I forget when the original transformer paper came out, but it was like three or four years ago, I think. And it's completely transformed the field of machine learning and led to a lot of the new capabilities that people are talking about now. So that's new. And then, you know, the idea of, of scale as a, as a crucial design parameter that leads to emergent capabilities is also new. Um, and that also has, I think, surprised the community in the past five or so years. So I think, you know, downstream applications of fundamental 
insights, like the, like the, like this, those two ideas are unpredictable, right? So I would not be surprised if I if we were surprised in the next decade, right? And, <laughs> There's no better uh, ending to anything. Um, I would not be surprised if we were surprised. Um, Josh, thank you so much again for coming on today's show and for explaining the at times unexplainable. Uh, thank you again. Yeah, thanks a lot, David. It was a lot of fun. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Becky Holmes about pushing back against romance scammers. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.